Have you ever been sitting at a bar, enjoying a cold beverage with friends and telling stories? Stories that stretch the truth, maybe even bend the truth. Sometimes, when good cocktails are at hand, facts aren't quite as important as good yarns. But what happens when your story gets challenged? You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat and the drinks we drink. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Today, we travel the South and beyond with Wayne Curtis, exploring the close relationship between cocktails and storytelling. It was 1917, and a bartender at the Seelbach Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, was mixing several drinks at once. He opened a bottle of champagne and, as champagne will do, it cascaded over the top. And some of that plume of fizz spilled into a Manhattan he'd already made. So he set that drink aside and remade it, but then he sipped it later. And it was fine. Good, even. It was bright and effervescent, but still had the ballast of its era. The bartender tweaked it a bit, adding some orange liqueur, and called it the Seelbach cocktail. He put it into regular rotation at the hotel. But the drink's popularity was short-lived. Prohibition came along in 1920, and hotel bars like the Seelbach ran dry. The high road to national greatness and enduring prosperity does not run through the brewery, the distillery, and the saloon. That is, until Seelbach bar manager Adam Seeger rediscovered the cocktail in 1995. He found it on an old bar menu in the hotel's archives. So it appeared on the Louisville Hotel's cocktail menu once again, complete with story. Guests ordered it, guests loved it, and it made its way into a slew of new books about classic cocktails, which seemed appropriate for a drink that came from a hotel itself that was so classic it got a passing mention in The Great Gatsby. For the past 20 years, hotel visitors have walked through the ornate hotel lobby and into the bar and ordered Sealbox. It's one of the bar's best sellers. Robert Simonson, a cocktail writer based in New York, ordered one about a decade ago. We went down to the bar, and I was with a fellow journalist, and she said, well, of course, we have to have a Seelbach cocktail. Simonson writes about drinks for the New York Times, and last year he published a comprehensive history of the cocktail revival called A Proper Drink. Yet back then, he hadn't heard of the Seelbach cocktail. And I said, why? What is that? And she told me the story that had been handed down through the years, that it was a lost pre prohibition cocktail that had recently been discovered and um, had now been written up and included in books and and it was the drink that you drank when you went to the seal box so we ordered one. Simonson remembers thinking it was a pretty good cocktail not super high on his list of favorites but perfectly fine. His experience at the seal hotel nearly 10 years ago was pretty typical. Go to the seal order a seal drink it. Flash forward to last year. Simonson was attending a small event to promote a new bar that Adam Seeger, now a well-known bar consultant, was opening in New York. From the stage, Adam mentioned that he'd recently confessed to another bartender that he'd actually, well, made up the whole story behind the Seelbach. It was a complete fiction. At the end of the night, Seeger turned to the crowd and said, Good night, thank you for coming. But um, me being a reporter, (laughs) I sensed a story Simonson darted out of his seat and up to the stage. I was with a friend, and she said she had never seen me move so fast before. 
Once the comments were done, I went straight up to Adam Seeger, asked him if it was true what he had said, and he said it was, and then I asked him whether he'd be willing to admit that on the record, and he said, yes, I would. Simonson's article about the fictitious Seelbach came out in the New York Times last October. The headline, that historic cocktail, turns out it's a fake. I wrote Seeger and asked him to talk to me about the backstory. Why did he make up a fake history for the cocktail? And what did he think of Simonson's article? But I didn't hear back from him in time for this story. You might think that was because he had been ostracized and was embarrassed about lying for trafficking in these alternative cocktail facts. But that really hasn't been the case. Most cocktail writers and bartenders I've talked to have just laughed, even those who included the fake story in their books, as Simonson did. Many complimented Adam on coming up with an utterly plausible and enduring story. Adam, it turns out, found himself with a foot in each of two eras. One was in an era now gone, when good stories told at bars, about bars, and about drinks were the currency of the time. Everybody made things up. Nobody really cared as long as the story was well told and entertaining. Then, about 10 years ago, I started hearing a phrase in bars that I don't think had ever been uttered before inside a bar. It was, what's your source on that? The new generation of cocktail and spirits writers, and I include myself among them, had started sifting through all the stories, trying to separate fact from fancy. How did this whiskey really arise? Which bartender really did first make that cocktail? Did the cocktail really originate in New Orleans? We wanted answers, and we wanted the truth. It's hard not to think that something's been lost here. What do we lose when we stop making up stories? What role does storytelling play in the cocktail world today? I've been writing about liquor, cocktails, and bars for more than a dozen years. I got into this because I was interested in the history of drink, why people drank, what they drank, what they were doing while they drank. Two moments helped shape how I think about stories and spirits. One took place in France and the other in New Orleans. This was the first moment. I was taking a tour of this amazing building. It's a sprawling palace full of stained glass windows near the Normandy coast in France where Benedictine liqueur is manufactured. Its makers have long claimed that it was concocted from a rediscovered 15th century recipe originally developed by the Benedictine monks. In the mid-19th century, someone supposedly found this recipe that called for distilling spirits and herbs and various other whatnot in an alchemy manuscript that had been hidden away, and they decided to produce it again. During the tour, I asked my tour guide about this and wondered where that manuscript with the recipe was located. The, the original recipe that was in the apothecary, the alchemy book, is that kept, you said it's kept in a vault? Is that in this building or is it somewhere else? No, there? no, it's not here. <laughs> if I if I tell you, it's so secret that which that we. Yes, that first, and then, no, it's so secret that nobody knows where okay. the recipe is. We just know that as other, they are in safe, safe? Okay, safe, safe somewhere in the area? So, somewhere in, in, in Europe. Uh, in Europe, or okay. on the, I don't think it's in the U.S., but okay, in don't Europe. Think. If you couldn't hear that very well, she said the recipe was so secret that nobody knew where it was. Then she added that it was in a safe somewhere in Europe, or maybe the United States. In short... She was repeating a story that had been made up of whole cloth. 
It dates back to 1865, when a wealthy industrialist named Alexandre Legrand decided to start making an herbal liqueur. He instinctively knew that it needed a good story to go with it, and so in came the monks and alchemy, followed by more than a century of fiction that somehow had morphed into fact. Even that building I toured was something of a fake, a 19th century reproduction of a 15th century palace. It pointed up to me how deeply and colorfully a good drinking story can embed itself in popular culture. The second moment took place about a decade ago. I walked into this tiny four-seat bar at the Ritz-Carlton at the edge of the French Quarter in New Orleans with a couple of friends. A bartender the size of a fullback with a gravelly baritone voice was behind the bar. Among the drinks we ordered was a mint julep. The bartender's name was Chris McMillan. As he assembled his bar tools, a silver julep cup, a bar spoon, a canvas bag, and a massive wooden mallet for pulverizing the ice, he started reciting something. It began slowly and then picked up speed like a stone rolling downhill. The mint dips its infant leaf into the same stream that makes the bourbon what it is. The corn grows in the level lands through which the small streams meander. By the brookside... That's Chris, when I asked him to repeat the ode on tape more recently. But the first time, when we were at the Ritz, I was totally unexpecting anything like this. And I'll admit it, it was a little weird. Was he talking to us? Was he talking to himself? Was he talking to an invisible friend? But within a minute or two, we were all sucked in and pulled along on this journey of the mind. Sip it and dream. You cannot dream amiss. Sip it and dream. It is a dream itself. No other land gives such sweet solace for your cares. No other liquor soothes you so in melancholy days. Sip it and say, there is no solace for the soul, no tonic for the body, like old bourbon whiskey. <laughs> Upon finishing the ode, he slid the julep across to us. And to this day, I recall that as being the single best drink I've ever had anywhere. And not because of the bourbon he used or his techniques in pulverizing the ice to a fine powder, though those didn't hurt, but because this drink came surrounded by this technicolor cloud of soothing words, it turns out he was reciting an ode to the julep written in the 1890s by a Kentucky judge named Joshua Sewell Smith, in which Chris had long ago memorized and unspooled out to guests when the mood struck him. Well, that was the best julep I'd ever had. It also improved every julep I've ever had since. The story has somehow infected my taste buds. And much the same is true for Benedictine. Even though I know the whole Benedictine monks invented its story as an elaborate bit of fakery, as is the fancy palace. I remember the creaky stairs and the echoes of the place, and I swear I can still taste the monk's handiwork every time I sip it. When I lived in New England, my neighbors and I talked to convey information, rarely more. Those who could do it most efficiently were the most respected. It was as if you were given an allotment of only so many words to use during your time on Earth, and people were afraid they might run out. Living in New Orleans for the past decade, I've learned that it's not really the case here. Information seems to be more a vehicle to get you to the digression, which is the whole point of talking to someone. Researchers have looked into the old world influences of immigrants from places like Ireland and West Africa on the Southern storytelling tradition. Others have looked at the mild climate and the persistence of the porch as incubators for a storytelling culture. Yet, we don't so much tell stories today as traffic and snippets. 140 characters here, an Instagram caption there. We hit send, and then we sit and we wait for someone to ping back. 
Bars have been more or less resistant to these trends. Even though televisions mounted up among the liquor bottles might offer an excuse not to talk, striking up a conversation with a complete stranger in a bar is still an accepted, often even expected, part of going out for a drink. Chris McMillan, the mint julep bartender bard, likes that bars are inherently social places. People come to bars to have fun uh, with their friends, you know, and the ability to be engaged uh, while you're there. And storytelling is a big part of that engagement. Look, I've got 39 drinks on my menu. Each one of them has a story. I mean, literally every one of them. McMillan left the Ritz-Carlton years ago, and he stopped reciting the ode to the julep when the word got around and people started coming in from out of town and expecting it. He started to feel like a human jukebox, with strangers plopping in a coin and waiting for something to come out. It no longer surprised. Chris and his wife, Laura, now have their own bar called Revel, a couple miles from the French Quarter, just off Canal Street, a place made for people to interact. We don't have a television here, so the entertainment it has to come from personal engagement, and when we're left to engage with each other without the interdiction of technology, uh, then we're required to use the age-old methods that we've been using since we were in the cave, uh, you know, behind the fire, which is to actually talk to each other uh, and share with each other uh, uh, the experiences uh, which maybe each one of us hasn't uh, experienced individually, uh, but through the experience of the person we're there with can experience vicariously. Chris indirectly brings up a bedrock fact about drinking and storytelling. Bars are part of the entertainment world. They compete with movies and video games and Snapchat for the fickle attention of consumers. If they can't do that, they won't succeed. Coming up after the break, will the recent professionalization of bartending culture, which you gotta admit is kind of endemic to the craft cocktail movement, will that render the iconic storyteller bartender extinct? But first, here's that donor music. On April 29th and 30th, Lodge Manufacturing hosts the annual National Cornbread Festival in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, just down the road from Chattanooga. Enjoy cornbread cook-offs, a 5K road race, and Ferris wheel rides. Stroll down Cornbread Alley to taste innovative recipes, eat a cornbread omelet, and cheer as organizers crown the 2017 Cornbread Cook-Off Champ. More than 40 musical acts play at the festival. Country singer Keith Anderson headlines. Join the historic tour, the only time of year the public is invited to tour the Lodge Foundry. Take your family and support the National Cornbread Festival, just as Lodge supports this podcast. Details are online at nationalcornbread.com. Really, when you get right down to it, especially in 2017, you can go on the internet and in five seconds get the recipes for all the greatest cocktails ever made now or in the past, and you can make them at home as well as anybody can make them for you in a bar. That's Jeff Beachbum Barry, who owns a bar in New Orleans called Latitude 29. You come to a bar for other reasons. You come for either uh, companionship or, or you come to escape, or you come to do all kinds of other things that aren't necessarily drinking. And that experience uh, to entertain all the other senses and to entertain other parts of your mind is, is what we have to do now. Um, and what, frankly, for me, is more fun to do. Jeff Beach Bomberry moved to New Orleans a couple of years ago. He grew up in Southern California, where he became fascinated by tiki culture, which was then at its zenith in the late 1960s. 
tiki restaurants and tiki bars first cropped up in the 1930s and were built around whole fictional worlds based on elaborate fantasies of Polynesia and the South Seas, in food, and drink, and decor. The trend spread from coast to coast. In the South, some of the most famous tiki restaurants were the Bali High in New Orleans and the Mai Kai in Fort Lauderdale, which, incidentally, is still open and well worth a detour if you're down that way. I think of the tiki bars as sort of bar storytelling 2.0. It was commercial, created by the owners to captivate their customers and thereby loosen their wallets. And all were essentially descendants of the very first tiki bar, which was opened in Hollywood in 1934, by a guy who called himself Don the Beachcomber, who, as it happened, spent a lot of time in New Orleans when he was a kid. As the fad grew, restaurateurs would hire Hollywood art directors who did production design for movies in Hollywood to do their interiors interiors of the tiki bars and the restaurants that went with them. They would craft these restaurant interiors as little technicolor movie sets, as perfect fantasy realms, most of which had no windows. They were hermetically sealed. When you walked in, you were walking into a fantasy, very artfully uh, crafted in great detail to remove you from reality. And a story often went along with that. Jeff was fascinated enough by this lost culture to research and write eight books about it. Then he and his wife, Anine, open their own place, which offers more than a nod to the past. It's got a backlit reliquary showcasing mugs and menus from some of the great lost tiki joints of history. You can also taste the past and many of the drinks he's recreated from interviews with retired bartenders. The whole thing was storytelling from beginning to end. It was almost as if the food and drink were almost beside the point. It was just an, an evening out as theater, but without a play, uh, without a movie, you were basically the main character of this little drama you were inventing in your own mind with the assistance of some amazing interior decor and, uh, and a very carefully crafted culinary journey. In the tiki world, the word culinary encompasses not only the food, but also the elaborate drinks made with fresh juices and exotic rums. These drinks were the hallmark of such famous tiki restaurant chains, such as those launched in Los Angeles by Don the Beachcomber and in Oakland by Trader Vic. Few remember the poo-poo platters they ate there, but everyone remembers the drinks, like the Mai Tai, the Zombie, and the Fog Cutter. In many ways, Jeff today reprises the role of the great tiki raconteurs like Trader Vic and Don the Beachcomber, who served as a presence in the bar, but were rarely the bartenders. Both these guys, and their many, many, many imitators over the 40-year uh, tiki craze, invented personas for themselves, and they invented backstories for themselves, and this was part of the experience of dining out at their restaurants, was to actually rub shoulders with one of these um, equatorial adventurers, many of whom had never been beyond, you know, Malibu Beach. Though the French Quarter is a couple thousand miles from Malibu and even farther from Waikiki, Jeff greets guests to Latitude 29 wearing amazing vintage Hawaiian shirts and woven hats and tells stories about the vintage tiki flotsam and jetsam he has on display at the bar's backlit case. The chief difference from his predecessors, like Vic and Don, is that he's aware he's now telling a story about a story. The interesting thing about creating the interior for Latitude 29 was that we were not doing a tiki bar with the same mission statement as the original ones during the Golden Age. That mission statement was 
um, here's the story we're going to tell you. It's the story that you're the main character. You step into this thing. You're going to meet people like Don the Beachcomber. You're going to be surrounded by all of these oceanic artifacts. Um, you're going to be in a little movie set. And your mind can wander and your fantasies can run wild. This is a tiki revival bar. Now what we're basically doing with Latitude 29 and which other tiki bars around the world are now doing, they're reviving um, a basic, basically a dead concept. And the story now is the story of the story that took place from the 1930s to the 70s. It's all referencing the first golden age. A fairly well-known study came out in 2004 that looked at how sound can influence taste. The title was, The Role of Auditory Cues in Modulating the Perceived Crispness and Staleness of Potato Chips, which was a $10 way of saying that if the chip sounded crisper, it tasted better. This might seem pretty obvious, and a lot of people made fun of the study, but less obvious was the researchers' look at how humans tend to involuntarily combine various sensory cues into one multisensory perception. I've also turned up studies on how mood, music, appearance, texture, packaging, and the place where you eat or drink can affect how you perceive the taste of whatever it is you're eating or drinking. But I've found no studies on how a good story can affect taste. That it does seems as intuitive as a crunchy potato chip. It's my experience that a good story always makes something taste better. And I'm worried we're losing that part of taste. The modern cocktail revival has seen the rise of the elegant and often pricey craft cocktail, which you can order in all the new Cool Kid bars in fathomless measure. The revival has also seen the return of a class of professional bartender, folks who see this as their livelihood, not as a gig during grad school or between auditions. They have the time and motivation to get bartending right, with many of them worrying the details right down to the last milliliter. But deafness and behind-the-bar storytelling is lagging. The new crop of bartenders keep their heads down when behind the bar, and they focus on eyedroppers of tinctures rather than their customers. One bar consultant I know told me he used to get hired to come in and teach bar staff how to make drinks. But now, bar owners ask him to come in and instruct the staff on how to tell a story, how to make eye contact, how to connect with the customers. Robert Simonson, the journalist who exposed the truth of the Seelbach cocktail, says storytelling is an art. Storytelling, I mean, that's a skill that is hard won. I think the older bartenders were much better at it, uh, and the younger ones, not so much. So I'm not exactly sure how you learn something like that. Uh, but, yeah, you better have a good story, but not just a good story if you're going to have a house drink. You better, have, you better know how to tell it well. It doesn't matter that it's just a good story. You have to tell it well, the way that Chris McMillan does. That's our mint julep maker, Chris McMillan. As someone who tracks down histories of drinks and stories, I'm all for getting the facts right. But maybe we needn't be so fastidious. Maybe letting a little fiction back into the bars isn't a bad thing. Maybe we should let the bars do what they do best, which is to serve as petri dishes where stories can propagate and grow. I was in Louisville a couple of months ago and stopped by the bar at the Seelbach Hotel after Robert Simonson's story about the big lie came out in the New York Times. The hotel is now a Hilton, and the bar has too many TV sets blaring for my taste. But I walked in and grabbed a stool and ordered a Seelbach. The bartender told me that the truth and the New York Times story hadn't gotten in the way of sales. It was still the bar's top-selling cocktail. I sipped it, and it tasted like a mistake made right. 
Later, back in New Orleans, I asked Chris McMillan if he thought the truth might diminish the taste of the Seelbach. No, it only enriches the story more. You know, uh, I've told the Seelbach story a bunch of times, and now it has an addendum to it, you know, that uh, brings it up to contemporary times and relates it to an individual uh, person and their personal experience. The truth makes a nice frame for a drink, but I'm thinking the story is always what will set it apart. Wayne Curtis is a journalist and author based in New Orleans. He once schooled the SFA faithful on the attributes of those sweet, rummy, red things called hurricanes, the kind found on Bourbon Street. If you want to learn more about cocktail culture and storytelling, visit southernfoodways.org. There you'll find gravy footnotes about the music and text and other resources on which this episode was based. You might also find a cocktail recipe or two as well. Original music for this episode is by Greg Schatz. That Hawaiian guitar music you heard is by Matt Bell. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Robin Miniter. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Coming up, a taste of the next Gravy episode, but first... While listening to this episode, did you find yourself craving a cocktail? Soon, you can slake your thirst the SFA way. This fall, look for the Southern Foodways Alliance Guide to Cocktails, written by SFA Managing Editor Sarah Camp Milam and bartender Jerry Slater, and published by the University of Georgia Press. With 80-plus recipes and the stories behind them, this book will be your complete guide to the drinks that define the South. Meanwhile, head to southernfoodways.org to explore our oral histories with bartenders from New Orleans and Louisville, two of the region's cocktail capitals. While you're online, consider becoming a member. Membership dollars support all SFA work, including this podcast. On the next episode of Gravy, do you know where to find the best shawarma in Memphis and the only commercial Syrian food in that city? Guest reporter Rose Reed does. She joins us to tell the story of one refugee who escaped the rubble of a Syrian hometown to run first a gas station kitchen and now his own restaurant, Alibaba. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm John T. Edge for the Southern Foodways Lines. And as you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, not war.